Welcome to the Around the World in 20 Minutes podcast. This is John Halsman, and I'm going to try to help you wend your way through a very complicated but fascinating world. Today we have a final look at Afghanistan, looking for definitive political risk thoughts as to what all this meant. I think I'd begin talking about Afghanistan for a final time by quoting Lawrence of Arabia in the 27 Articles. Um, Lawrence of Arabia was the great nation builder who worked with local cultures and rather than ignoring them, realizing that if he had popular support locally, he could never lose and without it, he could never win. And when asked how to deal with handling the Arabs, in his case of the Hejaz, Western Arabia and Syria, he said the beginning and ending of the secret of handling Arabs or any developing people is the unremitting study of them. And this is precisely what hasn't happened in the case of Afghanistan. But let's go back a step. At the beginning of 2006, I found myself at a rather young age, the senior research fellow at the Heritage Foundation in Washington, the largest and one of the most powerful think tanks in the world. If I did not mess things up too badly, by virtue of that early seniority, and let's be clear, the Republican Party is entirely run by seniority, a generation of major positions in the American foreign policy establishment seemed assured for me, perhaps even one of the great offices of state. I had gotten ahead very young and was in line for these things, which is how things work in D.C. However, just a year later, I find my, found myself in exile in Europe, starting a new and ultimately better life as head of my own global political risk firm. So what happened? A simple matter. I found that I simply could not go along with the powers that be in the United States for both ethical and practical reasons. In my specific case, my concern was with U.S. efforts at nation building in Afghanistan and Iraq. Worse, in terms of threatening the foreign policy establishment, I wrote, along with Anatole Levin, a book called Ethical Realism, a bestseller charging the unholy liberal interventionist neoconservative Democratic Republican Alliance with nothing less than criminal malpractice in foreign policy, predicting that both wars in Afghanistan and Iraq would lead to calamity as the U.S. ignored its primary interests, focusing instead on the utopian siren song of nation-building. Yet even after history has utterly vindicated me over this most portentous foreign policy call of my life, this past month has left me sick to my stomach, looking at the unnecessary chaos accompanying America's panicky withdrawal from Kabul. One example of a legion suffices. To manage any withdrawal on this level of complexity, secure control of a first-rate air base is absolutely necessary and pretty obvious. The U.S. had in Bagram Air Force Base, just 35 miles north of Kabul, one of the best airports in the whole of the region, with a two-runway capability, easy access to and from the capital, and long-standing military control of the area. Instead of using so ideal an exit point, inexplicably, on July 2nd, the U.S. nonsensically abandoned the strategic asset in the middle of the night, slinking away without even bothering to inform the inept, corrupt Afghan government of Mr. Ghani. But just weeks later, amidst all the chaos surrounding the bottleneck at Kabul International Airport and the terrorist attack this tempting target provided for ISIS, the obvious question remains. Why in the world did the U.S. not use Bagram for this obvious purpose? This is a mistake of criminal proportions, and not the only one made during this calamitous withdrawal. However, we must keep our eye on the strategic ball. 
all the heart-rending pictures of suffering and chaos are largely beside the point. Worse, they are being used by the very U.S. foreign policy establishment that got us into this mess in the first place as a very convenient excuse not to take responsibility for the absolute and utter failure of the Afghan war, a failure I could clearly see coming fully 15 years ago. That this is a strategic debacle of, ep of epic proportions cannot be in any doubt. Some historical perspective makes this eminently clear. It took fully three years after the Soviet withdrawal in Afghanistan in 1989 for its client ally, the Najibullah government in Kabul, to submit to Mujahideen forces. It was two years on from the U.S. exit from Vietnam before Saigon finally fell to the Northern Communist forces in 1975. This disastrous time around, the utterly corrupt, inept, demoralized U.S. coddled Ghani government fell to the Taliban in embarrassing, unseemly haste, three weeks before the official date of America's withdrawal. In practice, the Ghani government managed to stand on its own for a pathetic 11 days. Not even a fig leaf can hide the, the America's utter failure at nation-building in Afghanistan. That this failure came about was not for one of American efforts, however. The University of Portsmouth has estimated that beyond the U.S.'s 2,500 battlefield deaths, an unimaginable $2.26 trillion was directly spent by America on the war. This does not include the cost of taking care of the wounded afterwards, interest on this debt, etc. To put this into comprehensible terms, this amounts to every American paying $6,886 for the war and every Afghan receiving an incredible $59,474. So the next time somebody tells you America didn't do enough in Afghanistan, remind them that we handed each Afghan a check for $59,000. The ruinous spending outlay is three times that of the U.S. annual defense budget and 97 times the NASA budget. It is clear that rich and economically productive as the U.S. is, it simply cannot shoulder the burden of another such geostrategic folly. So then, given this reality, what are the specific strategic lessons of political risk that can be learned and must be learned from the folly that was America's nation-building efforts in Afghanistan? One, Afghanistan is merely part of the larger phenomenon of failed U.S. nation-building everywhere that occurred over the past generation in Somalia, Haiti, Iraq, Libya, and then Afghanistan. Those liberal interventionist neoconservative proponents of nation-building are hoping the rest of us don't have short memories. They're betting that we have no memories at all and are utterly amnesiacs about everything that they've done. Failure in Kabul is not the problem. Rather, it is part and parcel of a more broadly failed, promiscuous nation-building strategy in Somalia, Haiti, Iraq, Libya, and Afghanistan. In Somalia, the U.S. intervened, then cut and ran, with only minor casualties involved, precisely because Washington had no significant interests of any kind in Somalia. This begs the question as to why the U.S. intervened there in the first place. U.S. intervention did nothing to stop Somalia's slide into endemic civil war, chaos, and terror. America has intervened literally a dozen times in Haiti over the past century, and it remains a voodoo-riven, kleptocratic, economic basket case. Need we say any more about Iraq? As Barack Obama rightly puts it, U.S. intervention in Libya, urged on by America's feckless European allies, was the dumbest thing he ever did. 
Libya went from being a stable state run by a bad man, Colonel Gaddafi, to a failed state riven by endemic civil war, where ISIS has managed to regroup. Libya now poses a grave, grave refugee threat to Europe's southern flank, which is just a comeuppance for Europe's role in unraveling the country's stability. Afghanistan is not some unique case. It is merely the most egregious example of a generation's worth of U.S. nation-building failure. So that's the first lesson. Afghanistan is not a discrete event. It is part and parcel of a much larger problem. Second, you cannot nation-build a country of which you know nothing. One of the great thrills of my intellectual life was being asked by Simon & Schuster to write the foreword to the 100th anniversary edition of T.E. Lawrence's Magisterial 27 Articles, his blueprint for successfully working with developing peoples. The climax of his philosophy is his crucial point that the beginning and ending of the secret of working with Arabs, as we said at the top of the podcast, was the unremitting study of them. America's breathtaking arrogance and hubris did not allow for, for specific local and political and cultural conditions to be taken into account at all with predictably disastrous results. For instance, anyone who knows anything about Afghanistan knows there is no nation there to build. Since the days of Alexander the Great, through the era of the British Raj, Afghanistan has been little more than a geographical expression. The political reality is that the area is dominated by a loose collection of tribes, the Pashtun, the Hazaras, the Uzbeks, the Tajiks, who only unite to throw off foreign oppressors before going back to fighting amongst themselves. Such a confederal political culture obviously called for the putting in place of a weak central government, with much of the power in the country being devolved to the local tribal-dominated regions. Instead, in typical one-size-fits-all fashion, the U.S. artificially centralized power in Kabul. Anyone with a rudimentary knowledge of the place would have known better, but that is just the point. None of the great and good staffing the White Houses the past two decades had the granular knowledge of Afghanistan necessary to make successful nation-building a possibility. I remember this knowledge gap personally. While I was working at the Heritage Foundation, I was tasked with briefing soon-to-be senior U.S. staff heading off to Iraq about the basic differences between the Sunni, the Shia, and the Kurds, the basic ethno-religious building blocks of the country. These decent and well-meaning staffers soon confided in me that they had no idea of the differences between the three, let alone the history, cultural, religious orientation, and strategic desires of any of the three groups. This is where the war in Iraq was lost. For how can nation-building work when senior American staffers don't know what a Kurd is and what people in Kurdistan believe? You cannot remake a society and transform it if you know nothing about it. I can't believe I'm having to say it, but I am. Point three, leaving was always going to be ugly, but that is not a reason to indefinitely stay. As I wrote in my last book, To Dare More Boldly, one of the basic psychological hangups of U.S. policymakers in particular can be called the losing gambler syndrome, a fact of life Las Vegas casino magnets are well aware of. Dad, having gambled away the kid's college money, keeps playing at the tables as he cannot go back to mom and let her know of his disaster. The basic reason for his loss, the terrible odds, is never addressed. He keeps playing and keeps losing, thereby creating a false rationale to keep playing. This basic intellectual fallacy led America to disaster over and over again, first in Vietnam and more recently in the forever wars of Iraq and Afghanistan. 
about the only argument the humanitarian interventionist neocons have left after 20 years of failure in Afghanistan is the losing gambler syndrome. We just have to stay, given all that we've invested. Of course, by this terrible logic, the inevitable further sacrifice and further failure will simply compel America to never, ever leave. Joe Biden was entirely right to end this doleful cycle by ripping off the psychological Band-Aid and leaving. Losing a war is, of course, an action that by definition will end badly and in some chaos, though not the ocean of it we have seen. This is bound to ensue, along with some reputational costs. Biden did the right thing almost entirely the wrong way. But we mustn't let the interventionists rewrite history. After two decades, there simply was no real rationale for staying in Afghanistan, other than to kick the can down the road further, putting off defeat at the price of further U.S. blood and treasure, while never, ever having a chance at victory. But while rightly lambasted for his shambolic withdrawal strategy, embattled U.S. President Joe Biden ironically seems to be finally learning from history. In two speeches Biden has given following the debacle in Afghanistan, he seems to have learned history's lesson, that the ruinous policy of nation-building has to come to an end. One of the biggest mistakes of the American war in Afghanistan, the president argued, was the relentless intellectual drift of the mission from being a strategy for crushing al-Qaeda, which it initially was, to the U.S. nation-building in Afghanistan, where one has never existed. U.S. troops, brilliantly joining forces with the Taliban's archenemy, the Northern Alliance, wiped out its al-Qaeda-sympathizing government by December 2001. Al-Qaeda was so devastated by this remarkable and forgotten battlefield victory that it has never regained its former strength. But then, in an act of disastrous hubris, the U.S. decided it had to remake the geographic expression of Afghanistan as an actual nation. As Biden mournfully put it, our mission in Afghanistan was never supposed to have been nation-building. It was never supposed to be creating a unified, centralized democracy. Our only vital interest in Afghanistan remains today what it has always been, preventing a terror attack on the American homeland. Biden is returning to realism. Interests, not utopian projects, must once again govern American foreign policymaking. At the end of August, in a dramatic White House speech, Biden went even ideologically further proclaiming an end to the nation-building era, era where US, the U.S. used its military might to attempt to remake other societies. The president focused on two key lessons that the Americans must learn from Afghanistan. First, we must set missions with clear achievable goals, not ones we will never reach. Second, we must stay clearly focused on the fundamental interests of the United States of America. This is not just about Afghanistan. It is about ending an era of major military operations to remake other countries. And this leads me to my surprisingly upbeat conclusion given this debacle. Because for all the gloom, the political risk takeaway from Afghanistan is that America has a brightening geostrategic future. How in the world can I say this given the catastrophe that we've endured, both for the two decades and particularly over the past couple of weeks? Even as the lion's share of the chastened American foreign policy establishment currently pretends it had nothing to do with a generation's worth of nation-building folly, and again, as I say, I was there in Washington and was almost alone in standing up against nation-building at the time. That I can surely say along with Anatole. Ironically, though, things are looking up for the U.S. in political risk terms, for there is a fourth lesson that must be learned from the Afghan debacle. 
Strategically ending the forever wars in Afghanistan and Iraq is a very good thing for the U.S., as it allows the country to do what it ought to have done before, fully pivot to the Indo-Pacific and deal with peer competitor China, rather than squandering blood and treasure over areas of far less strategic importance to the United States. The first rule of the serious study of foreign policy is that all nations have interests, and that these national interests tend to guide their foreign policy making. As such, not all countries and all regions are of equal importance to the United States, or indeed any other country. One of the major reasons a generation's worth of U.S. nation-building happened when it did was because structurally during this brief era of the unipolar moment, America lived in a very permissive geostrategic world. It was the planet's only superpower and could indulge its nation-building whims without much genuine strategic consequence to its overall position. Lose in Somalia, no big deal geostrategically. Lose in Haiti, no big deal geostrategically. Fritter away the stability of Libya, more a European problem than an American problem. If this unipolar moment explains why nation-building occurred, the lack of strategic importance of each of the countries involved explains why nation-building failed. Somalia, Haiti, Libya, Iraq, and Afghanistan simply could not be more different places, having only one strategic fact in common. None of them are of even more than secondary or even tertiary importance to the U.S., once things got tough, leaving always made more sense than staying, as unlike in Germany and Japan after World War II, these were not areas of primary American national interest, to put it mildly. This has become even more true as the basic strategic outline of our new era has definitively emerged. We now live in a world of Sino-American superpower competition, with India, Japan, Russia, the EU, and Anglosphere great powers also having a lot of room to make independent and consequential foreign policy decisions. Gone are the days of easy and unfettered American power, as we now live in a time of great power competition, where the frivolities of indulging in nation-building look wasteful, and beyond that, entirely beside the point. Ignore the present chaos and hysteria. These are the real political risk lessons of Afghanistan. Ripping off the nation-building band-aid, however badly executed, leaves the U.S. in an infinitely better geostrategic position to focus on what matters, the Indo-Pacific, where most of the world's future economic growth and much of the world's future economic risk and the Sino-American superpower competition come together. We now live in an era characterized by great power competition, realism, and focusing intensely on what matters in terms of U.S. interests. For the U.S., waking up from the nation-building nightmare did not happen a moment too soon. So ironically, for all the obvious bad news of Afghanistan, there is a very good political risk news here beneath it all for the improbably blessed United States. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, we intend to keep giving you counterintuitive, fresh, cutting edge, and above all, correct political risk analysis as we go forward. For those of you who like this, please do subscribe to our newsletter to get the Patrick Henry podcast, the Around the World in 20 Minutes podcast, book serializations, article serializations, and everything we're providing as we put more and more content through the wonderful platform of Substack. And again, for those of you who have subscribed for free, I would ask you to up it to $7 a month, which is the yearly fee for the price of a Starbucks a month. 
we can devote ourselves full-time to doing this as we increasingly are. And we don't want those of you for free to be left out as we move more and more content onto the paid subscriptions as we go forward. This is uh, learning by honor code. And for the price of a Starbucks, I think we can give you more intellectual nourishment than that. So thanks once again. Onwards we go. And thank you for making the journey with me as we make sense of the fascinating new world we live in. Thanks very much.